Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative. Today, I have the pleasure of my mentor, Dr. Linda Siegel, Professor Emeritus from UBC, join me. And we're going to be talking over the next few days about her journeys and her uh, philosophies when it comes to identification and assessment of learning disabilities and best practices for teaching and intervention. Today we're focusing on her journey to where she is today. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Siegel. Can you give people a little bit of information about who you are and what you've done and then we'll dive into how you've got there. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I um, was trained as a psychologist and uh, with an interest in language and cognitive development. Uh, at that point in time, when I started, the emphasis was on normal or typical development and the idea, and this was in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, of children with difficulties were really not part of the equation. We were interested in getting norms. So um, that's how I started out. Uh, I have been associated with four universities, the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, the University of Toronto, Toronto, and finally, uh, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Wonderful. So before you started as a psychologist, like you graduated high school, and what led you to that path? Well, I actually started to read uh, Freud, and I thought it was quite fascinating. Uh, and the one particular book was The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, um, which was, of course, originally written in German, which I don't speak, but it was a very good translation. So I thought this is quite fascinating. So I decided to go into psychology as a major, but where I was an undergraduate at Queens College in New York City, their emphasis was on behavioral psychology and not on uh, clinical psychology or psychoanalysis or anything like that, although we did learn about it. So uh, I uh, became interested in behavioral psychology and actually doing research. Wonderful. So you, you did your, your bachelor's degree in psychology and what was that thing that sparked your interest to go further? Well, I actually worked in a lab and this was a, uh, a primate lab. And uh, it was, uh, I saw that um, there was research that was possible uh, in terms of this was animal behavior. And that was my, what I started out in. Um, I later switched in graduate school to working with children because um, they could talk and they were more interesting than the primates. 
because we couldn't really do very much with the primates. It was, um, you really had to go and observe them in the wild. And um, that really wasn't an option for me. So um, I switched to children. Yes, they're much easier to come by. Yes. So then uh, you finished your master's and then went on to a PhD. So what was your initial research on in that uh, doctoral program? Uh, It was on uh, children's learning and processing information. Okay, so what did you find? Like what, what were you looking at specifically in children's learning? Um, well, I was looking at how children perceive uh, regularities in the environment and whether they could see patterns in numbers and sequences of numbers. And uh, so that's what I did my dissertation research on. Um, so uh, it was really an, inter- an interest in uh, cognition, numerical cognition. Wonderful. So you graduate, you've got a PhD, you're not too sure what to do with it. What are your next steps? How did you get to that first placement in Missouri? Uh, Well, um, I was uh, very interested in how children learn mathematical concepts. And I was very, at that point, Piaget was Mm -hmm. very popular, but the way Piaget looked at children, they were, they were highly verbal tasks. And if the child had to understand the language um, and it wasn't clear whether if they failed, if they didn't understand the language or they didn't understand the concepts. So I developed a whole lot of nonverbal tests of uh, numerical reasoning mm-hmm. and um, did research in that area for a while. It, well, really it was mathematical and logical reasoning. Right. So that would have brought you more into the field of education than just psychology. So starting out in that educational psychology realm, it was, it was pretty new at the time, wasn't it? Uh, it was new. And at that point, it was no clear concept of learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So uh, I then moved to uh, McMaster to the medical school there mm-hmm. and I started talking to working with pediatricians. And at that point in time, and this was the early seventies, uh, pediatricians, if a child had difficulty in school, they would go to a pediatrician. Um, the schools didn't really seem to be doing anything about it. And the pediatricians I worked with said, well, we really don't know anything about learning and, and behavior. So work with us. So that's how I got started in the learning disabilities field. So how did that beginning work look like? Like what, what were you doing with the students? and? How were you able to, to build up this knowledge about learning disabilities? Well, it started out with some very simple research uh, in um, uh, memory 
development, mm -hmm. which I'd worked on a bit in terms of normal or typical development. Uh, but in order to ascertain that they had a learning disability, I did the testing. So I did all the testing myself. Um, and uh, then I would talk to the students and the parents and the teachers. And that was very, very enlightening because I got a picture of learning disabilities, which you didn't get from anything you could read at the time. Uh, the picture that I got was, yes, there were difficulties and they weren't being helped in school. And the assessment was very inadequate and as was the definition, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were also, uh, most of the, the children and families could recount some strengths and abilities that they had. And that wasn't at all mentioned in any of the, uh, any of the articles of the time, at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess this probably started laying the foundations for your book, Not Lazy, Not Stupid, Understanding Dyslexia and Other Learning Disabilities, uh, which is available uh, if you're interested. Um, so you're, you're starting to build this understanding of the importance of memory and how that impacts learning. Uh, and I'm assuming that some of this included uh, tasks related to working memory. Yes. Um, so do you want to take a moment and talk about that important piece of, of working memory and learning how to read and do mathematics? Okay. Well, working memory is the idea that um, information is coming in and you have to process it. So it comes in quickly and you have to use, you can't just do rote learning because you have to do something with the information. So an example of a task that we did, um, we would give the child a sentence with uh, a word missing in the sentence and they would have to supply the word. And then we would give them two, three, four, five sentences and they had to remember the word that they supplied. So this is something like what you do during reading where you have to read the words but and you have to use your decoding skills to read the words, but you also have to remember what you've read. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense. So you're not just rote remembering, you're really, um, this is why we call it working memory because you're operating on the information that comes in. So um, we found that that was a, really uh, an important skill for reading and that children who had reading difficulties uh, couldn't do that. They had much lower working memories. And the same thing with math, whereas you had to count, but there was a field of blue and yellow dots and you had to count in an irregular arrangement. You had to count the yellow dots and then another one would come along and you have to count those yellow dots and then you have to remember the numbers. So you might only see two of them, three of them, four of them, or five of them. And so that was a test of your working memory for numbers. And of course, uh, children who had uh, difficulties with arithmetic um, had a problem with that. 
Right. Now, is that the same thing as short-term memory? No, short-term memory is uh, something where if I just gave you numbers and asked you to recite it back, so you don't have to to think about it. Um, Whereas there's some uh, tests where you give somebody numbers and they have to repeat it backwards. So there again, they have to operate on it. It's not just repetition. Right. So, you know, you could have the ability to just parrot something back, but when you actually have to take that information and use it, that's where you see the difficulties and that's going to impact the reading or the numeracy because that's when the individual is having to take the information from the page, use it and come out with a result that isn't just looking at uh, a number and saying seven. Yes, that's, that's very well said. That's exactly what it is. Awesome. So you were doing this research, working with families, helping them understand how their children learn. And how did that turn into, you know, the research side of things and the the publications? Where were you going at that point? Well, there were a number of um, other uh, cognitive processes that we were testing also. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them was the understanding of syntax. So we would give a child a sentence and they would have to supply a missing word in the sentence and then remember the word that they supplied. So this is what similar to what you're doing. When you're reading, you have to understand the structure of the language. So um, we also researched that, but <clears throat> what it, it became clear to me during this research that we have to be very precise in defining who has a learning disability. And much of the existing research at the time uh, was very inadequate. In other words, they didn't have a precise uh, criterion for deciding who goes into the learning disability category and who doesn't. Uh, So we started out because that was the test that was widely available at the time, the wide range achievement test. Mm-hmm. And we said, if you had a score 25th percentile or below, then you were probably, and you were struggling with reading, spelling, arithmetic. Uh, so um, so I used that, those as screening measures and that's, I had a clear uh, criteria. You had to be 25th percentile or below. Um, And that was something that somebody named Byron Rourke, who did a lot of the early research, he he used it also, but often there were were other techniques that was used. One of them was um, using a discrepancy between the IQ and the reading. Now, as part of the research, because this is what you did at the time, I gave a lot of IQ tests and I knew the whisk by heart we could do it in my sleep. And I, it became clear to me that I really wasn't learning anything from spending all this time doing the WISP because it would take 
an hour and a half and then just to administer it, then you had to score it. And it doesn't, didn't really tell me anything that would help understand the learning disability. So um, it became clear to me in the, in the 80s that we don't really need to do the IQ test. And we certainly don't need to use a discrepancy definition because poor readers, or some of my research was comparing poor readers who had a discrepancy versus those who didn't. And we didn't find any differences in reading skills and approaches to it. So that was one aspect of it. Okay. Can I just interrupt for a second? Not everybody is familiar with the diagnosis of a learning disability based on that discrepancy model. Can you just give us a brief overview of what that definition or diagnosis needed? Okay, you would be called um, to have dyslexia or a mathematics disability um, if you had a reading score, for example, in the case of dyslexia, that was significantly lower than your IQ score. So both of these would be standard scores. So you might have an IQ score of 120 and you might have a reading score of 90 and that would be a significant difference between the two. So that's called the discrepancy and if you didn't have that discrepancy, a significant discrepancy between your IQ and your reading, then at that point in time, you were not called dyslexic. Right. And one of the problems with that is when we look at the assessments themselves and looking at what an individual is tasked with during the IQ test, it can actually be testing their disability and not getting an accurate representation of their IQ. Yeah, because the IQ test itself contains uh, some subtests which deal with memory, some with vocabulary. And we know that if you, you're after about the age of six, you get most of your vocabulary from reading. So if you have a reading problem and you read less, then you're gonna have a lower vocabulary. So therefore you will end up with a lower score on the IQ test, even though you might be a poor reader and you might be, in my view, you should be called dyslexic if you have reading difficulties. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the other, another um, uh, cognitive process that emerged during this was the idea of phonological processing in phonics. And this was very new in the 70s and not really adopted by anyone. Uh, and I proposed that we start using, in addition to word reading tests, we should be using pseudo word reading tests. And that was a very foreign idea. Uh, so, um, it's uh, it it became still to this day when you see most many psychoeducational testing they don't use a pseudo word reading test 
And if you think that decoding and phonological processing is a significant part of dyslexia, then the purest test of this is a non-word test, a pseudo word. What does that look like? Well, you have words that are pronounceable, combinations of letters, but that um, don't appear as words in the English language. Mm -hmm. For example, a word like G-R-O-A-K, groke. Mm -hmm. There's no word like that in English, but if you have good decoding skills, you could decode a word like that. Yes. Well, and one, one of the things, why are we asking students to do this? And, you know, I worked in your reading clinic for several years and was administering these non-word reading tasks. And through the time that I did that and some of the non-words that were on that list have actually become words uh, in today's society. <laughs> Um, just with the explosion of words, one example would be kudu. Uh, and that's now a name of a, a mobile company, right? <laughs> so it is an important skill to be able to decode these words that are phonetically regular. So it's not some random string of letters that cannot be decoded. It's a string of letters that meets the requirements of an English word. Now, one word that, again, I can read in a fraction of a second, so it would be considered orthographically mapped. But it, you know, for me, it's just an item on the Woodcock-Johnson word attack, and it's corpostonius. And um, when, I'm, when I'm speaking with individuals, it's one that, I, that I'll flash up on the screen saying, look, this is an English word. You likely have never seen this word before in your life unless you've done this type of training or done a psychoeducational assessment. So it's not one that you have orthographically mapped. It's not one that you can recognize within a fraction of a section. But by the time that I finish this talk, most of you will know this word and have it orthographically mapped. And it'll be some crazy word that I put up during a talk. And that's what you're going to assign to it, but you're no longer going to have to strenuously decode it. All right, so we've talked about some of that phonological awareness uh, that's coming on. And now at this point, were we looking deeper at phonological awareness, looking at the manipulation of speech sounds, or is that later? Uh, no, I think uh, that was something that happened uh, early on mm -hmm. um, in certain certain circumstances in the 70s, certain researchers were looking at that, although it was relatively rare mm -hmm. that they would look at that. Um, and uh, so the decoding is very important. And what we learned subsequently uh, in English, because it's so irregular mm -hmm. that you can't just look at a word or look at many words and know how to pronounce them. But in languages like Spanish and Italian and German, if you know the sounds of the letters, you can just say them. And um, vocabulary is irrelevant, but in English, vocabulary is very relevant. So what they use for, to measure dyslexia in mm -hmm. regular languages is the speed of decoding. 
And in the beginning, we didn't do that in English because we had uh, a different type of language. Mm -hmm. But now, um, and still in many psychoeducational assessments, I do not see a measurement of the speed of reading, something like um, the, uh, the tower. Mm -hmm. Test of word reading efficiency. Word. Yes. Yeah, and they have, and it takes 45 seconds to do the words and 45 seconds to do the pseudo words. So you can't say there isn't time to do it. And that is now becoming a very important test. And again, it's not done in most uh, psychoeducational assessments. Right. You know, there's two other aspects that, you know, I, I see in psychoeducational assessments. And that's the rapid automatized naming and the processing speed. Can you speak a little bit to those two um, components? Well, for example, rapid naming yeah. is how quickly you can name objects or letters or various types of it. And I don't really see that what that that's important in reading. And a matter, as a matter of fact, there isn't much emphasis evidence that it has much to do with reading. So it's not clear uh, what kind, it's how quickly you can retrieve verbal information, but it's again, very, uh, it's not very complicated verbal information. So I, I don't think it has much to do with reading and it is part, sometimes part of a screening test, but I don't see that it we found in our work that it was not very predictive of later reading skills. Uh, and um, Processing speed. Yeah. Well, I always thought that that was a very silly concept because what are you processing? I mean, I process numbers quite differently than I do words. I And you don't have a the concept of a, processing speed doesn't make any sense to me. It's, uh, it's domain specific. So if you measured my processing speed for numbers, it would be quite quick. If you measured it for words, <laughs> it would be a whole lot less quick. Um, so, but what does it tell you? You know, I, I think there are some uh, things that we could measure that we don't have standardized tests for, things like morphology, which right. would be very important, especially in the, um, in the older age groups. I mean, uh, you know, past uh, early elementary school, um, you know, what is your understanding of prefixes, roots and suffixes? But I know of no standardized test that measures it. So, we have some experimental tasks that we use, but it would be very nice to have a test of that. Yeah, well, and especially when you consider that the English language is a morphophonemic language. So that means that our spellings of words are based on morphology and phonology. So the meaning of the word and the sounds within the word. I'm pretty sure it's like 99% of the times the morphology trumps the phonology. And that means that if there's a meaning element to the word and it traces back to a morpheme, a prefix, root, suffix, base element, whatever you want to call it, 
then the spelling of that is going to take priority over the spelling of the sounds within the words. Now, a lot of our uh, prefixes, roots, suffixes come from Greek and Latin. And it's important to realize that those spelling patterns are different than the language or the spelling patterns of the Old English. And that's why we have so many different spellings for sounds. And when English adopts a new word, they typically stick with the language of origins, spelling patterns. So understanding that element can help our young readers. Now, we've gone through the 70s and, and in the, like you've had so many publications, so we can't go through them individually. Um, but the big thing that stands out to me in the 80s and 90s is that shift towards whole language that occurred. So as someone who researched and worked with students with learning disabilities, what did that look like and how did that make you feel? Well, it actually started in the 70s. Oh, sorry. Uh, and uh, although I, have, I agree with you that it really came into its own in the 80s, but it was still around in the 70s. And really the tragedy of that is that it, move people away from looking at the basics. <clears throat> the basics is learning to sound out words. And there's always the arguments that you get, well, there's much more to reading than sounding out words, and that's true. But it is a basis. It is the fundamental skill that you need. You can't read without it. Now, you need more, you need vocabulary, you need syntax, you need morphology, etc. But and if you don't know how to sound out the letters, then you're never going to get to those higher level skills. So it's fundamental. And I think it moved people away from that, um, both in the teaching of reading and helping students with dyslexia. You know, there were all kinds of fads um, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, visual and motor skills and all that, but the fundamental problem was it was language-based mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, we didn't really, in terms of our intervention, deal with that. Right. So what was the, the focus of your studies at, at this time? Well, I, I would say it was the, uh, the phonological aspects of it, um, both the uh, phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, and also phonics. Um, but I was also uh, trying to get the best possible assessment. And um, I started writing in the 80s about how we didn't need the IQ test. It was very, very unpopular. Uh, basically, I got a lot of criticism. If you read the articles, uh, what people wrote after I had the 89 article in the Journal of Learning Disabilities saying that IQ is irrelevant, 
uh, people were so critical of that. And basically nobody agreed with me in print anyway. Um, so it was very unpopular. Uh, and gradually things shifted, although it's still not completely accepted that we don't need the IQ. Right. And that's an amazing conversation that we're going to be having tomorrow. Uh, so I don't want to dive in to that too deeply right now, but while you're doing this, are you also looking at that intervention piece? Are you still focusing on the, just the assessment side of things? Yeah, we started to do some work in intervention. Um, there was a, a program called the Bridge Reading Program, which associated symbols with words. Um, it didn't really concentrate on decoding skills, but that was very successful with uh, some children. Um, and uh, we, it was very difficult to do, it's very difficult to do an intervention study even now mm -hmm. in schools because you have to have a control group that doesn't get the intervention. Mm -hmm. And the schools are very reluctant. Well, they basically won't let you do that. So uh, it's really very hard to test it, but, um, but we didn't really know what to do. And uh, it, it, at that point in time, there weren't very good programs or alternatives or any ways of helping children. Uh, so we didn't quite know what to do. We knew something had to be done, but we didn't know what it was. Yeah. Well, and I definitely want to address that, um, the research speech a little bit later in this conversation. Um, so at what point did you move to the U of T? Uh, that, that was uh, in, uh, in 1984. And I was at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And that's where I set up, well, I had one at, in uh, Hamilton at McMaster, but I set up a reading clinic where we tested children. Um, and by that time, I was completely disillusioned with the IQ test, but I used to give the block design, which is a, the visual spatial test and the vocabulary test because you could calculate an estimated IQ. Right. And then I could show that the IQ didn't matter based on right. this estimated IQ, but I had those data. And I, uh, I had to move people gradually away from the IQ right. concept. So I had to have some, some IQ measure. Um, and so that's where, that's where I, well, even in Hamilton, I started talking to both the parents and the students. And I got um, a picture of, first of all, what their abilities were in addition to what the difficulties were, and also the difficulties that they were having in school, getting help. Right. And 
one of the things that I think is important for listeners to understand is what the difference is between an IQ test and the tests that you've been using in these reading clinics and when you've been doing your research. So what are they and and what's the difference? Okay. What we do is uh, an IQ test is a, it will be a test of vocabulary. Um, uh, There'll be memory components to it. Uh, There'll be uh, visual spatial components, motor components. And what we do is only achievement testing. So we measure various aspects of reading, spelling, um, uh, arithmetic, and writing. But what is the most important aspect of what we do is to measure and try and understand the errors that a child makes, because that's a clue to the help that they might need. So so an example is if they spell the word nature, N-A-C-H-U-R-E, which you can pronounce, if you see it, you would say nature. But a child who spells nature that way has some good uh, phonic skills, but doesn't have a good orthographic memory for the word. And then you might see the word nature spelled N-A-T-U-R, which is much closer visually to what nature looks like, but you wouldn't pronounce it as nature. I guess you would say natur or what, I'm not sure what you would say because it's not an English word. Um, so uh, it, we, go, we went beyond the score and you tried to understand the errors. But at that time, and even now, there aren't systematic um, studies of the errors that, that children make. So we don't know what would be typical? Is the error just typical of a younger child or is it something really different that the dyslexic is doing compared to the normally achieving child? Of course. And I think that error analysis is definitely a vital part of things when we look at any of the assessments that we do with students, especially if they're struggling because it can really help inform the instructional targeting that they need. Um, And especially when we start working with older students, instead of just saying, well, that's the wrong answer, we need to ask, why is it the wrong answer? What were the steps the student took to get to that answer? And, you know, was it, if if it's a math question, was it an issue with carrying uh, numbers or keeping things sequenced in the correct column of lines uh, for um, the answer. So what are some of the, the studies that you did at OISE that you think personally made the biggest difference? Not necessarily the ones that are the most well-known, but you think might have had that biggest conceptual addition to the field? Um, I would say that's where I published the work on IQ. And I would say that was the most significant contribution 
first an analysis of the IQ test and showing how it was very much dependent on specific experience. But I did a study in 1992, which is not well known and unfortunately not cited when it should be, which is very annoying to me. But um, what I compared is the this dyslexic students, the ones who had a discrepancy between their reading and IQ and the ones who were poor readers, but didn't have a discrepancy. Mm -hmm. And I found that in basic decoding skills, basic language skills, memory skills, those groups were not different. Um, so there was no reason the IQ wasn't really helping you say anything about them. And so what does that mean as far as education, if, if we're looking at today's students? And, and unfortunately, and hopefully this is changing, the need for that diagnosis. And one problem that we see with the IQ achievement definition, even though it's been removed for years now, is that it means that we have to wait until the children fail. We have to make it so that they've had enough time and there has been enough learning happening for there to be a difference between where they should be and where they are based on their intelligence. Yeah, I, uh, that's, that's very true. It's very true. Um, and it's very sad because even in kindergarten, children are aware that they're struggling compared to other children, certainly by grade one. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, we think that they don't know what's happening, but they're very much aware that everybody else or almost everybody else seems to be able to uh, read the words on the page and they can't, mm -hmm. they struggle with it. So um, we know we've known for years that it's much easier, cheaper, more successful to treat this early on. So um, basically what we're not doing is we're not monitoring um, the development of reading or even and math skills. We're just not monitoring them at all. Right, and, and the problem with that is to several aspects, but one is interventions are most effective early on. The other is, or another is, those that struggle with reading and are identified late rarely ever catch up. And that's another strand of research that you have looked at, uh, looking at the impact of not learning to read and what that does for the long-term outcomes of an individual. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, there's a uh, several impacts. Um, first of all, we know that, and this is not particularly my research, but it's based on uh, research in a number of countries that most of the people who were incarcerated, who were in prison, um, have very significant reading difficulties and dyslexia. Um, 
I just heard the mayor of New York talking about his dyslexia and how he ended up uh, in the juvenile justice system because of uh, acts, uh, antisocial acts. Um, and he said that, you know, because of his problems with self-concept, because of the difficulties he had reading, um, created this. So that's one aspect. Um, we, we did a study of the homeless young people who live on the streets of Toronto and 83% of them had significant uh, learning disabilities and they'd all been through at least grade 10 in the Ontario school system. So it wasn't a matter of them being out of school and not getting instruction and they simply were missed. But the one that was really, I think the most significant is we studied all the adolescent suicides in a three-year period in Ontario. And in every single one of those cases, there was evidence that there was a learning disability that had not been properly identified and treated. So suicide is for a parent and other relatives, it's, especially parents, it, it must be the most devastating uh, thing that could happen. And we could have prevented, in every single one of those cases, we could have present, prevented the suicide if we had done the identification uh, and intervention right. early on. Right. So then I guess it's important to fast forward to when you moved to UBC, the University of British Columbia, and that study that's often referred to as the North Vancouver study or Reading 44. How did that study come to be? And why was it so monumental? Well, I uh, received a fellowship um, that allowed me to do this work and what I wanted to do. And, and um, there was a, someone at UBC had a good contact in North Vancouver um, that uh, where we wanted to identify children at risk early and intervene uh, early in kindergarten. And uh, so, uh, we approached the North Vancouver school system. And just at that time, there were two very good school psychologists who were learned about uh, phonemic awareness, phonological processing, decoding. And these school, with the school system, with the teachers, they developed this program called Firm Foundations. So we did a test of it. Now, one of the issues, I wanted to have a control group, somebody who didn't get, the, some children who didn't get the intervention, but the school district was against that. So they said, but you can do the whole school district. So um, we, although there was one school, it happened to be a fairly high income uh, area, that didn't want to do it. They still wanted to keep the whole language 
balanced literacy going. So I said, okay. So we started doing this intervention and the, uh, this one school saw how well the other children were doing. So let's say I, that, that was gonna be my sort of control school. Um, but then they decided they didn't wanna be control school anymore. They wanted to be part of it. So they started doing it. But they, what was interesting is that this was really a collaboration uh, between the uh, UBC, the administration and the teachers and the school psychologists. So everybody was working together to make this a reality and uh, contrast with other school districts, particularly like Richmond, which didn't even want me to do my research there. They said they were against it. That it was, it was evil, you know, it was terrible to make children um, learn phonological awareness. It was really, um, it was really amazing. Uh, so it really worked in North Vancouver and uh, the, the administration was particularly helpful. The teachers were very cooperative and um, they really developed firm foundations and um, they did it in their classroom and it really, they saw how successful it was. So they were really happy. Right. And I think some of the, the big takeaways from this study or the important things to realize is that we're not just talking about a wealthy school district where all the students came to school speaking English with a great background, with strong, supportive families that were literate. We're talking about a district that has a wide range of social economic status, language background. And so you're not just talking about students that have English, you're also talking about those language minority students and those students that truly are at risk coming from homes where, you know, the, it doesn't have that same security as other students have. Well, in terms of the children uh, who didn't know English when they came, 20% of them didn't know any English and they, participated in this program. And what we found is that in some aspects, not only did they do as well as the native English speakers, but in some cases they did better. Uh, and especially the dyslexic ones where they were, their spelling, their phonological awareness was almost as good as the non-dyslexic. They were still a little bit behind. So, the dyslexic children, all children benefited from it, but particularly the ones who had English as a second language or uh, the dyslexic students. Right. And you weren't just looking at these students for a year or two, you actually followed them from kindergarten to grade seven. What did you see year after year after using this, I'd argue, structured literacy approach to teaching reading. And uh, it was more than uh, phonological awareness. Um, it, they did, they worked on vocabulary and uh, they didn't 
as far as I knew, they didn't do that much or they didn't do anything special with writing skills. So we didn't really measure that. But in terms of reading, um, they were absolutely outstanding, but they seemed to get fewer children had difficulties were in the, the dyslexic category each year. So when we finished the study at the end of grade seven, um, 1.5% of the children would be in the dyslexic category and uh, one5 of the children who had English as a second language were in the dyslexic category. So it, there were, and we had a very liberal definition of dyslexia. If you were below the 25th percentile on the word reading or non-word reading, we put you in the dyslexic category. So that's the, it's, um, uh, most of them were really not as seriously dyslexic as uh, other children might be. Well, and if, if a school psychologist did that formal psychoeducational assessment, it could be that they would not have been considered dyslexic, considering all the factors in those assessments. So that's really remarkable that through classroom instruction and small group instruction within the classroom, you were able to get the results. And this is really promising. The important thing to highlight is at this point, we have several studies showing similar results where this type of instruction and early screening and intervention can and does make a huge difference for all the students in the school. So I think it's time to stop questioning whether it does work and now move towards, okay, we know it works. How can we make sure that everybody gets access to this so that it doesn't matter what area code or what postal code you live in, what's, what your um, zip code is. It doesn't matter what school you go to, you're gonna get that quality education and you have just a good of chance living on the wrong side of the tracks as you do living in that upper middle class or elite neighborhood. Well, one of the uh, findings that we had, we looked at um, the correlation, the relationship between socioeconomic status and reading. Mm-hmm. when the children came into school and there was a, uh, a significant correlation. And mm-hmm. as they stayed in school, that correlation decreased. So in other words, the background had, the socioeconomic status had less and less influence on the child's reading. So it was down to um, about a, uh, a 9%, it was explaining about 9% of the variation by the time we got to grade three. So, you know, we haven't completely leveled the playing field, but we've made a a very big dent in it. And that's what the public education system is supposed to be doing, right? It's trying to make it so all students have equal access to their learning. the doors can be opened uh, wide open when they graduate. Wonderful. Well, we just have a few minutes left for today's conversation. What advice would you have for the beginning researchers of today or the ones that are just looking for that next research project? What would you advise them to look to do 
Well, this is a tricky question because what we really need is research and intervention. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that uh, they have to worry about building a career and getting tenure in the universities and all that. And intervention studies take longer to do than just studies of cognitive processing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, ideologically, I would advise them to do intervention, but I don't know that that's such a good career move. But hopefully universities will recognize that it does take a while before you do it. And one aspect might be um, doing short-term interventions. Uh, but I think also one thing that could be done uh, easily or more easily than an intervention study is doing really good studies of error analyses and working on that and using those data. I also think that we could do with much more detailed studies of morphology and how it, uh, how it interacts with reading skills. So, uh, and even maybe short-term interventions in uh, morphology. So, but I think I would go with the error analysis as something that they could do to help build a research career, but at the same time, trying to do some intervention studies. Definitely. Now, the one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the Ontario Human Rights Commission right to read inquiry that you were a a very large role in that. Uh, And it's actually the the reason why I created this uh, web and podcast. Um, What are your hopes for that report? I mean, I've been speaking with people globally about it and everyone feels that it, it, it has the potential to be that game changer. Well, what's been happening in Ontario, uh, this was at least before the election and um, hopefully it will continue after the election in Ontario, uh, is that the Ontario government is starting to make some changes in uh, funding and in what they support and uh, support for early identification and intervention, which is a a big one. Um, So hopefully that people will actually read the report and it's long and, but there is a executive summary and I have written some short articles about it. And hopefully that will uh, really have an impact on uh, particularly um, students with with dyslexia, but also on the teaching of reading. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Siegel. I look forward to our conversation tomorrow. Um, The identification and assessment of reading. Thank you. Thank you for your great questions.